Professional services is simultaneously one of the most difficult and attractive opportunities to disrupt today. On one end of the spectrum, you have large consulting firms like McKinsey, and on the opposite side, you have freelance platforms like Upwork. But the middle hasn't really been fulfilled, and with more companies in the middle being startups and technology businesses, the void has never been larger. So this week I chatted with Chris Bakke, founder and CEO of Lasky, on how he's thinking through the future of professional services. Chris sold his previous company to Indeed and was head of product where he led a suite of products that helped 250 million people find their next job. In this conversation, Chris and I unpacked the professional services landscape, specific opportunities that can create the highest impact, and some of the misnomers and myths of this market, and how he's attacking the space through his new company, Lasky. Chris, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, appreciate it. Good to see you again. Yeah, Chris, excited to have you on the show today. You know, we're going we're gonna to start off with some startup lessons, uh, but I do want to go deep into your new company, Lasky, and what you guys are building. Before we jump in, just give folks listening a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so I have been working in technology startups for about 11 years. I started as an employee at a real estate tech company uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago. Um, spent about a year in, in real estate private equity before that. Uh, did not enjoy that. And that was in Los Angeles and moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area uh, about a decade ago and joined as an early employee at a company called Rent Juice. And Rent Juice was a startup that had raised a few million dollars um, in a seed round uh, from uh, Tim Draper and a bunch of other people and was tackling really a CRM for listing agents and, and real estate agents as the you know the, the economy had just crashed and lots of lots of agents who were previously selling homes were looking for uh, ways to make more money and so they were getting into uh, you know individual rentals and, and real estate listings and stuff like that and so we were building a CRM to help them manage all of their rental deals on the listing side. Um, that company was acquired by Zillow in 2012, um, and so I joined Zillow and was uh, head of biz dev for a bunch of new ventures at Zillow um, for a couple of years, and so worked on uh, building out Zillow Rentals, worked on the the mortgage um, marketplace product, and worked on Zillow Digs, which was a home improvement product, um, and then went to uh, 42 Floors, which is also a real estate tech company, um, and joined uh, again, early as, as kind of an operator employee there, uh, where I met my current co-founder. Uh, and so he and I started a company called Interviewed Together. So we shifted out of real estate tech and over to HR tech about six years ago. Um, and Interviewed was uh, built up for about two and a half years, raised, raised some money for it, um, got it to several million dollars in founder-led sales, then started hiring a team around it. Uh, got it profitable, sold it to Indeed, and then I just came off of a three-year uh, deal with Indeed running um, a, a division of enterprise product teams, uh, which was a lot of fun. And so now I've taken some time off and getting the, the, the band back together a little bit with this team that's worked together for several years now across many companies and, and have started last year, as you said. And so you've jumped across a, a couple of different spaces, right? Real estate, HR, we'll, we'll talk about Lasky, but it's it's more in kind of the professional services type space. What have yeah. been the commonalities and differences you know, between those experiences? Yeah, real estate and HR tech or recruiting tech are, are surprisingly similar on the surface. And so you have a lot of people at the highest levels, uh, people like my original boss at Zillow, Rich Barton, who have started almost like nearly identical companies in both spaces. And so if you look at what Rich Barton has done with Zillow, uh, a marketplace for finding a home, whether that's to rent or to buy or to renovate or to get a mortgage on. And then his other company, one of his other companies, Glassdoor, looking at companies that you might want to join as an employee and right, you know, reading reviews and, and uh, hearing insights, listening to insights from other people that have worked there or interviewed there very similar marketplace dynamics in the sense that you have all of these professional service providers around both spaces, right? In, in real estate tech, uh, you have all of these brokers, all these mortgage providers, mortgage servicers, uh, contractors, interior designers, moving companies, the list goes on that you can, in a marketplace model, monetize lead gen to those companies. And uh, with, with, with Indeed and with a lot of HR tech startups, you have all of these players around you know, individuals who are creating onboarding experiences. You have software providers, you have assessment providers, video interviewing providers, staffing firms, recruiting firms. 
And so ultimately you are, you are kind of, um, you're, you're showing a very similar experience to the consumer in both cases, somebody who's looking for a job or looking for a home. But the dynamics of how that actually works from a lead gen model at, at Zillow's scale or at Indeed's scale or even LinkedIn scale um, is, is remarkably similar. And so I always found that there were a ton of people who would cross over, you know, between those, uh, myself included, very accidentally. I think we, we started interviewed uh, in a weekend without really thinking about it, which was, you know, the HR tech company that we came and, and started after many years in, in online real estate. And it just seemed like a pain point that we wanted to address at the time. And it, it was a good one to address. Uh, and so there was, there was no, honestly, no real thought there. I think now the thought is more that um, I'm definitely a person who I find myself bored with a space after a while. And so in both cases, coming up at five to six years in a particular industry, um, just professionally, I think that there was clearly a ton of upside to stay in both of those industries and double down on the connections and, and people that I knew. But uh, I just couldn't personally get excited about uh, online real estate for the seventh year, online recruiting or HR tech for the, the seventh year. And so I'm just always kind of looking for the change, I, I think, after, you know, maybe five or six years. So you started a new company, Lasky, and, and the founding journey to it was actually pretty interesting and broke some canonical startup rules, right? You, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but you reunited with your team from your prior startup. And you started it with an inclination of what you wanted to do. We talked a bit about it early on when you were starting, but yep. not actually a specific idea, right? And if you, um, also for our listeners, Chris is one of the funniest people on Twitter, so you have to follow him. <laughs> but if you, you know, if you, if you kind of, if you fall into the Twitter echo drums or, or so, right, that's not the way to found a company, right? It's, it's kind of like blasphemous to, start a company in the discovery of an idea versus right what the canonical advice would be of you've experienced this individual single pain point and that's kind of how you build and start around it so talk a little bit more about that process you know and why start the company that way yeah uh i think for us it was uh, th there's always there's always prioritization that i look at and and i would say the the motivation and, and the priorities that go into somebody's motivation when they when they start a company or when they join a company and so uh one of my favorite things to just talk about in an interview it's not even really a question i think it's more of a discussion is i it, for a lot of senior roles in an interview i like to understand you know, what's somebody's motivation? Do you care more about equity? Do you care more about salary? Do you care more about like total cash compensation? Is this a, is this a bonus structure role? Pre-COVID, did you care more about your commute? And so the, the prioritization of all of these different things, I think leads people to um, make different trade-offs and make different sacrifices. In this case, it was unique because we have a small team now that has enjoyed working together across three different companies and we've been together working very closely together since 2013. And so it was almost like it, it was a no brainer. I, I don't even know that there was necessarily a discussion there. It was just, we are, we'll, we'll eventually start something. And when we start, we'll start it together. And, um, and then I think the second piece was in my previous company at interviewed, which I mentioned and alluded to before, uh, we started the company very quickly literally without thinking. And the, the actual founding story there was that we were all employees at a real estate tech company, uh, 42 floors, and we entered a weekend hackathon and we won the hackathon. And the prize of the hackathon, this is in 20, early 2015, was $100,000 to invest into our company. And we said, we don't have a company. And the judges of the hackathon, which were like Cyan Bannister at the time, she was at Founders Fund and Jason Calacanis, and all these people were like, you have to do this as a company. Like you just won. There's clearly something here to this idea. On top of the prize, we'll, we'll each put money in. And so, you know, I left work in 2015 on a Friday. And then by Saturday, we're talking, Saturday night, we're talking to lawyers about how do you start a company? How do you set up a company bank account? How do we actually accept the cash that we just won from this startup competition? And so there was no thought. I mean, the, I think part of the canonical rule here is, you know, you, you want to give some thought to, uh, the the market size and the TAM and you know the other competitors in the place uh, in, in the space and we didn't think about any of that because we just didn't have time and so it all worked out really well I think we had an amazing outcome but there were certainly from that experience there were a lot of uh, I would say ceilings that we hit fairly early on around the size of that market which in our case was non technical assessments so 
a, a you know candidates applying to a call center or to an entry level financial analyst job, and we were handling all of the back end work samples, multiple choice questions, assessments, personality tests. Loved by employers, often hated by candidates, and we were trying to make this whole experience a little bit more friendly and compelling for candidates to want to do. But you know, I would say that the TAM of that space is maybe you know, 100 or $200 million, at least in the US and Canada. And so very quickly, we found ourselves getting no problem getting to a million, no problem getting to 2 million, a little harder to get to 3 million. You're trying to, you know, you want a business where you can chip away at, you know, 1%, 5%, 10% of an industry and still have a massive business. And what we were finding is as we chipped away at 5% of this industry, uh, there was there was serious money there, but there wasn't like a billion dollar outcome there. And so, uh, and so very quickly, I, I think that out of the gates that limited us where if we, if we had had uh, a more thoughtful approach into the market, um, th there could have been a much larger outcome than, than the one that we saw. And so this time around, I, I, I honestly really wanted to start blank slate. I had maybe 200 plus ideas written down for my three years at Indeed. Uh, uh, like, like any founder who sells their company, you just kind of sit around and, and think of ideas. Um, and I was like, I don't know if any of these are good. Like th these are all just ideas and these could be terrible. The market could be limited. Some of them are way too ambitious for my own skill set. Some of them I would get bored, I think, in a week working on. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle that seemed compelling. Um, and in my time off from Indeed, I read this book, The Mom Test. And The Mom Test is really all about customer development and how to approach problem solving uh, as a journey and, and starting that journey from a blank slate. And this just felt, you know, super compelling. So there's absolutely nothing wrong. Like I, I think that there are massive companies built all over the map um, in terms of having a very clear thesis. And then it's just pure execution. You're just executing toward that thesis. In a lot of cases, you're just brute forcing the market into believing you and into kind of following your way into buying your product or your service. And this was really a, a blank slate, which I think was accelerated by COVID where there were so many trends as we started exploring what we're going to do next in August, September, and October of this year, we're like, you know, getting into remote tools on the surface seemed like a great idea to us, like no brainer. But also it probably seemed like a great idea to everybody. And so what happened was we went around and we talked to uh, executives and leaders at I think close to a hundred companies, yourself included, uh, maybe a month or two ago. And we found that there were all sorts of trends that we kept hearing over and over and over again that didn't, that seemed, I think, um, underworked on from technology entrepreneurs. And there were all these ideas that, you know, we had and we thought were amazing that we weren't hearing at all. And so having this blank slate approach is, is perhaps a, a newer, maybe more controversial way to, to, to build a company. But I think it really worked for us. It, it gave us insights into a lot of challenges that we otherwise wouldn't have seen. What were some of the most surprising ideas that you guys might have gone into that set of conversations thinking were really promising or you were anchored towards, you know, working on and ultimately yeah. kind of panned out in the inverse? Um, definitely, uh, I would say certainly, I, I said it uh, before, but remote tools and remote collaboration. Yeah. It just... It, my mind, and, and, and I know I will be wrong on this, like my mind felt like there was a massive opportunity to build something that's not Zoom, something that's not Slack, something that's not Discord. And there obviously is. I just I just haven't cracked what that is. But interestingly, you, you go and you talk to 100 people at a wide range of companies. We talked to people in uh, who were officers in, in the U.S. Army. We spoke to massive defense contractors. We spoke to bankers, consultants, technology executives. And we just, we just really didn't hear that this was that big of a problem. Like, yeah, there's, there's burnout. And I think that there's actually some sub issues there that are, that are maybe more accelerated by COVID, but you know, the ability to, to collaborate and communicate just seems to be pretty easy with, you know, teams or Slack or zoom and it may not be ideal, but you know, we didn't have any, we didn't walk away with any compelling ideas to go fix. Um, and so, and, and then I think the, the opposite was also the case where, you know, there were a bunch of things that made the list that I never would have thought of where, you know, perhaps one of the more interesting ones is, is around OKRs and just blank slate. If, if you go to a hundred executives and you say, what's the number one challenge that your company is facing or your team is facing, like 21 of those hundred people, first thing out of their mouths was OKRs. OKRs 
suck as a process. We don't know how to do them. We're not running them correctly, like help. Uh, and, and there's something really compelling there that I, that I think, yeah, I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy our OKR planning process at Indeed, a, you know, a, a mid-sized large company of over 10,000 people. But I just kind of assumed like, yeah, it's, it's broken and it's broken here. It's probably broken everywhere. But even talking to a couple of senior people at Google who have, you know, ultimately uh, helped usher the OKR process into thousands, tens of thousands, millions of other businesses all over the world. And at Google, like the process seems to suck too. And so there's obviously, there's some need for a new framework or for opinionated software there to come in and fix the OKR process. Um, I think it's a really exciting opportunity that again, we, we, we wouldn't have thought about that. That wasn't on our original list of ideas, but, uh, but there's clearly a, a multi-billion dollar company in, in helping all of these massive enterprises figure out better planning processes and better um, you know, objective and key results process. And so you guys narrowed the, you know, you narrow the stream of ideas on, you ultimately land on Lasky. Let's start talking about Lasky. Um, tell us yep. just what is the company, you know, what are you doing? And then we'll dive in a bunch in detail. Yeah. So right now Lasky is set up as a small holding company to go uh, off and, and research and execute ideas really in the professional services space. And, and I would say tech enabled professional services. I think that this, this manifests in a lot of different ways, but our, our core thesis is that there are any number of problems and, and really compelling problems that you can go off and solve with a piece of software. But ultimately, I think we're really excited about this idea of augmentation. So taking a role or taking uh, a team or taking a job to be done and not saying that we have a clear thesis to immediately fix that problem with software, but we have a clear thesis to fix that with an expert um, plus a piece of software in a lot of cases, or, or plus, you know, many pieces of software. And so the, the thesis just goes back to there's, there's, there's um, lots of, of venture investment. There's lots of time investment from founders who are looking at problems and saying, you know, how can we fix this broken, uh, th this broken industry, whatever vertical or whatever industry you're in with software. And yes, that's an amazing business. If you can, if you can find that and you can, and you can develop something interesting there, yes, go do that. But I think there's all of these small problems um, that can quickly become large problems in an organization where um, even the best software, Salesforce, is not going to tell you how to sell your product, right? If you're, if you're a startup and you're trying to go zero to one with sales, you can get a CRM, you can get email automation tools. Nobody is really connecting all of the dots for you and showing you how to do this process. And so great investors can do that for you. A great hire can do that for you. A great advisor can do it for you. Um, but there's this entire world of professional services that I think has um, largely been overlooked. And, and I think that there are great firms doing super interesting things there around, you know, enabling people with technology to go connect these dots better and show companies the, the clearest path from A to B so they're not reinventing a wheel. Uh, and so that's really throughout this process. It's a very broad space. We have a couple specific ideas that we're focused on, but that's kind of what we what we came up with and, and got really excited about here. And let's double click on that because there's there's kind of this interesting phenomena going on in the advisory space, right? At one end of the barbell, and then you have like the canonical massive consulting firms of the world, right? The McKinsey's, Bain's, BCG's, et cetera, uh, really suited, you know, better for larger companies, expensive engagements. You've also got, you know, what I like to call spot services, right? Like a, mm -hmm. like a DLG or so to get kind of expert knowledge, get a quick burst of information. But I think the further you go down the market and actually the deeper you look in that market, the more you realize that there's just a lot of unstructured ad hoc delivery of knowledge, right? Like fundamentally the, the, the product they are selling is knowledge. So yep. talk a little bit more about, you know, when you hear the description of Lasky at a high level, I imagine, you know, a first question, I mean, even, even I had is, Hey, that sounds like a consulting firm, right? There's mm -hmm. obviously a different tweak here, right? How do you think about Lasky in terms of positioning when you hear kind of companies like a GLG and McKinsey, right? Obviously the, the other slate of the, you know, rest of the yep. landscape. Yeah, it, it's 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 something really interesting to think about, and I think even even longer tail the way that the way that we're looking at it internally, and I think that you actually part of our conversation a month ago helped us helped us come up with this. But when you are looking to solve a problem, I think on the actual lowest end of the scale, you have Google, which you know, googling something is done tens or hundreds of times per day for almost any you know mid level to executive type role where we're all trying to solve the same problems. And luckily there's a lot of documentation on those problems available for free through Google. 
you kind of move up that stack. And as you alluded to, you have the, the expert networks or um, you know, expert advisors or investors that can come into your company and kind of help with like, I've seen this movie play out a hundred times. You're going to have all the same pitfalls around hiring and setting compensation and onboarding and going to market and marketing and building your app. And so I've done this with a hundred companies and I can do it for you. Um, and then, you know, you move further up that food chain and you, you certainly have the, you know, the, the top consultants like McKinsey. Um, and, and I think that, that, that between, uh, actually between like each of those stacks, if, if Google is, you know, um, far left side of the spectrum and then you have, you know, the expert network somewhere in the middle and then you have McKinsey, I mean, the, the orders of magnitude that you're going, you know, jumping in price there from a free search to a $1,500 per hour call to a multi-million dollar engagement, um, there's a lot of opportunity, I would say, on, on either side of that kind of like Google to GLG or the GLG to, to McKinsey stack. And so that's, those are really the, the buckets that we're interested in exploring. I think one, one core idea here is just, is just simply around focus. Um, and, and actually from the surface, I think right now, uh, Lasky admittedly comes across as very unfocused. Um, we're running some very focused experiments behind the scenes, but I think you know, one of the challenges in consulting is that there's a race to go off and do everything. And the way that you ultimately get leverage is you figure out some way to productize, either actually productize with a product or, or a SaaS um, tool, um, or you kind of productize time where you're saying, we just do this one thing amazingly well. Maybe it's more expensive than you know, hiring a freelancer or hiring somebody to do it, but we do this all day long. We have a hundred case studies that we've built out around this one specific thing, whether that is you know, setting price strategy for a marketplace company or setting pricing strategy for a B2B SaaS company or you know, helping to acquire the first hundred users for a marketplace, whatever those things are. Um, you, you get, you get up the stack into the, the GLGs and the McKinsey's and, um, ultimately those firms just given their current scale are really trying to offer something for everyone. And, and I think a lot of agency businesses, a lot of consulting businesses fall into that trap, which is like, we'll do whatever you want. We'll just kind of figure it out. Um, and so we've, we've offered that, I think a little bit to consumers, but certainly on the back end, we're trying to find uh, individuals plus software that can do that repeatable task that we think, you know, almost every series B company is going to want this thing. Almost every startup is going to want that thing. Almost every publicly traded company has the following, you know, 30 challenges they're constantly turning to consultants for. Um, and so, uh, and so breaking those apart and componentizing them a little bit is something that I think we've been quite effective at. And it gives us the opportunity to go deep on a particular problem and say, what is the actual uh, leverage here? What is the what is the automation that's available? What's the software that's available? What's the productized service or or, or you know consultancy that that is available on this particular problem? Talk a little bit more. I want you to talk a little bit more about that. This kind of tech enabled right services business model. Um, one of the things I always thought of, you know, from my time at McKinsey, that people outside in would really get wrong about consulting is it was kind of this thought process that, you know, consultants are like the best consulting firms or the best consultants are just, you know, really good, um, like Excel modelers or putting good decks together, et cetera. And it was fundamentally uh, the best consultants were always the best like EQ kind of guys and gals. And, and a lot of that in terms of leverage and repeatability was fundamentally not going out and like using a product or using a platform to replace a consultant. And I think a lot of founders fall in this trap, especially when yep. selling products in this space, right? Which yep. is building a product to say, you know, like you came from a recruiting background, right? I run a recruiting company. Um, yep. We're building software to replace recruiters. And it's like, ultimately, you're probably exactly. selling that product internally to recruiters, right? And so, yep. so you yep. get exactly where I'm going with this. And so, but I, I think there's a nuance there, though, which is, it's not about replacing the recruiter, but it's about saying, how can I use a piece of software and take all the manual stuff that that recruiter consultant, whomever is doing, because that's not really the value for why we're hiring them, right? Yep. And how do we get yep. that out of the way and really allow them to double and triple down on this pres prescriptive value that they can add to the equation, which completely changes the business on the top of its head. Totally. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think we, we had a good conversation about this a month ago, which if I recall correctly, I mean, I, I think that 
the thing that I have fallen into from just a few months of research, but also from seeing us use a ton of consultants and freelancers, both at the, the lowest end, you know, offshoring teams, um, and the highest end doing some engagements on the research side with Gartner, doing engagements with uh, KPMG on the accounting and audit side, doing engagements with Bain and McKinsey on the consulting side. Uh, when when you look at a, a professional services company, they're, they're like anything else, there there's a spectrum. And I think if you look at um, you know, banking on one end and lawyers on the other end, there's there's a really interesting conversation around maybe I think the right term is probably like operational leverage. You know, how how far, how fast, to what extent can you augment that person's time knowing that like the consulting industry, the professional services industry is really about at the end of the day, it's still largely about relationships. It's largely about building that book of business through interactions directly with clients. But on the back end, when you're actually getting the job done, what's what's the leverage there? Um, and if you look in banking, you know, the number of uh, both retail banks, but also hedge funds that have replaced entire armies of kind of these, these EQ-focused you know, personal bankers, um, uh, professional advisors with software is incredible. You know, you've, you've actually seen thousands and thousands of jobs get replaced with software, but certainly the the argument there for like a uh, for an, an engineer coming into Goldman Sachs or for a wealth front or a betterment is not, hey, we're going to take banking jobs. It's just it's like, what can we do to build that relationship better through our brand, make the tools more accessible directly to the consumer? I think that there's a ton of, of interesting leverage there to be had in, in the middle, which is with consulting. On the other side, you have lawyers, which I think many extremely compelling and talented entrepreneurs have, have tried to get leverage in that space. And it's, it's really hard. I mean, I think there's, there's firms that are taking interesting swings at it today, but we've seen you know, any number of firms, I think, try and fail in that space. And there's just, I think there's, there's too many different things that you're ultimately doing to get a job done whether that's a financing transaction or you're suing somebody or you're, you're litigating or you're doing M&A, every one of those deals plays out so differently that unlike, you know, invest my money and just get the highest ROI possible on the other side, where there's these kind of very repeatable black box things that you can do, consulting probably falls in the middle. Like it's not as good of an operationally leveraged business as banking, um, but I think it's much better than like lawyers. And there's all sorts of things I think within consulting um, you get into M&A advisory and M&A advisory within consulting looks a lot closer to lawyers where I think that's very hard to get leverage. You know, perhaps um, go to market and, and data modeling and data science, I think is, is much closer on the spectrum toward, um, you know, toward banking where there's a ton of really compelling tools and pieces of software that you can use to take, you know, uh, a mid-level person who's a consultant and is making $300,000 a year. Uh, but it's being billed out at a million dollars a year, build that person plus the software out at $2 million per year and perhaps give them a salary lift to, you know, a half million dollars per year um, and, and, and kind of rinse and repeat that process. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's finding the key kind of the, like the interesting entry points, because if you look yep. across that spectrum, right, like I'm a lawyer by trade, the, the biggest problem actually candidly for anybody building in legal tech is fundamentally lawyers are selling their time. So this yeah. idea of like, we can augment your time, make it more efficient actually falls on deaf ears, right? Because fundamentally at the end of the day, they're selling their time. And so there's no kind of construct or concept of, hey, I can get more efficient. If anything, if I can get more efficient and get more leverage, I'm reducing my top line revenue, right? Because I'm spending less time on this particular engagement. And I think the M&A advisory piece you you called out also, it, in my mind, it, it's, it seems like these, the elements or the dimensions that aren't as great a candidates to get this type of leverage or either very high touch. It's almost like the two by two of like very high touch and very high skill, right? Mm -hmm. Where even from a client perspective, it's not that you really actually want all that much leverage because you want to make sure that, you know, foremost expert is getting the job done in the right way. But there's a whole ton of stuff I saw on the McKinsey side that very often, you know, you could, you could offer at a significantly better price point, you know, if you wanted to, right, to an end mm -hmm. customer because of operational leverage. I want to zone in on Elevate and Forward. Those are two of yep. kind of the, those focus experiments you guys are running on the Lasky side um, yep. and talk about why, you know, A, what those things are, right? And then B, why those were the entry points to start off with. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the, the quick context is we have been 
rapidly prototyping, I would say in the last maybe just four or six weeks on, on different brands or different um, entry points for us to sell professional services. And so uh, one is called Forward and Forward is uh, go to market as a service. And I think we've further refined that down to just content marketing as a service. So again, we as a two month old startup are, are selling into a lot of you know, seed stage to I'd say series C companies. Um, as well as a few spinouts from much larger firms that are operating more as like an incubated, um, you know, startup and are probably the equivalent from a revenue perspective of like a Series B or Series C company, but have the the cash and the the available investment of a much larger company, um, you know, available to them, which is great. So, you know, for for us. Um, this this all came a little bit accidentally on the forward side again i think we we knew that there was something compelling here we just started writing about the space a lot mm. and the number of people that inbounded us and said hey we're having a really hard time finding customers we're having a really hard time with pricing we're having a really hard time with all of these varied go-to-market strategies you know taking any one of those things and creating a um, a simple repeatable process for, for executing that in a cost-effective manner. We're almost, I think, we're probably operating somewhere in the realm of like, almost like a really highly leveraged fractionalized executive for some of these roles. So I think most of the companies that have hired us on the forward side for go-to-market help, um, the trade-off at our current price point, which is six to $20,000 per month, is often to hire forward to handle X, Y, versus hiring a full-time person to handle XYZ. And then the question is, you know, if you can go up market with that offering and, and offer that to larger and larger companies where you know, ultimately we're in discussions with companies that have 15 to 20 people on their marketing team. And the conversation is because we are doing the same things over and over and over in content marketing, in SEO, with backlinking, with creating really high quality content using this team of like vetted outsourced freelancers that we've gone through the process of setting up. We think that we can like churn out blog content or playbooks or checklists or like really high quality stuff that drives engagement, but also leads back to your business at a much lower and kind of more reasonable price point than hiring somebody full time into this role. Um, and so those are the types of things we're starting with. We're, we're starting really at like this, like extremely focused scale and then looking at across other go-to-market strategies, email marketing, um, pricing. Uh, pricing is a really interesting one that, that I think can use a lot of software. Um, and there's, there's no one software provider that like you can just input all of your metrics into and it'll say, this is the ideal price. I mean, pricing is clearly an art plus science. And those are the perfect areas to enable a really smart pricing expert um, who's worked with you know dozens or hundreds of of similar companies, plus a little bit of data science, plus a little bit of competitive analysis to say, you know we can really leverage this person's time effectively to give really detailed insights that are not just a swing in the dark like a founder would normally take around pricing, um, but really have some some kind of solid data behind it. Um, and so that's that's really forward is 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 go to market and and productizing individual services on the go to market front. Elevate is almost like a fractionalized chief of staff. Uh, to be honest, the vast majority of our revenue has come from forward. It's been a more popular offering because I think it's, it's a little bit more compelling in terms of what we can actually do. Um, Elevate is, is really helping us build the backend technology for how to handle requests and get those requests or get those problems assigned to the right person who can help, whether that's internally or externally to an agency or a consultant that we're working with. How do you think about, I want to I zone in a little bit on, Chris, what you were talking about earlier, which was kind of this, um, this displacement of talent of sorts. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting as you guys build the business is actually the opportunity to seize up talent. So we, if we take a little bit of a historical step back. One of one of the biggest breaks these talent platforms, right? Companies like Catalan, et cetera, um, that emerged and became really interesting businesses at a decent scale. Um, a lot of the way they were able to do that is they fundamentally exposed an arbitrage opportunity for talent, right? So you were talking about it earlier, but you know, let's talk kind of from from my lawyer experience, right? Fourth, fifth year associate at a top law firm, it probably makes about three hundred k a year, right? One hundred fifty bucks an hour. They're getting billed out at a thousand bucks an hour, right? Yep. The spread goes to overhead, sure, but it disproportionately goes to the partner pool. And, and platforms like Catalan basically said, hey, you know, we'll pay you two times the money, right? Uh, yep. 300 bucks an hour, so 600K a year. 
and we'll charge the client, you know, something that's a healthy gross margin or markup for us, right? 400 bucks, 450 bucks, whatever it is. Yep. So we'll make a 30, 50% gross margin, uh, but the client's still really happy because it's 50% of the cost, right? Yep. And you're really yep. happy because you're making double the money, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious how you think about that from a company building perspective, because it, it seems that there's actually a really interesting opportunity, especially the more tech enabled you become and the more leverage you draw to really actually acquire and build out a pretty interesting roster of experts to deliver this service, which, you know, in a class in kind of classical tech parlance drives a very interesting flywheel of just being a better and better solution over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great point. It's something that we're, I I think quite excited about. If you, if you look at, the two spaces that I've been in online real estate and online recruiting, there, there are actually quite a few parallels, you know, from, from your experience running a, you know, a sizable recruiting company there, there are all sorts of these firms where, you know, the individual recruiters are, are, are maybe getting paid a thousand, two thousand dollars three thousand dollars to staff like a hundred thousand dollar role. The, the company is, is maybe collecting like a 20% placement fee or 25% placement fee, very similar in real estate. You know, if you're if you're a junior agent, there's all these kind of splits that you go through. You're paying your boss, who's paying you know her boss, who who ultimately pays some broker. Uh, and, and so this this exists, I think, classically in a lot of licensed businesses with independent contractors, as we saw with Uber and Lyft and taxis. Um, but yeah, the, the the billing model on the high end is is really interesting, and I think currently you were always looking for more examples here. Uh, and so if anybody has any, feel free to reach out. But the, 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 the really compelling example is what Compass has done in real estate, where their thesis from almost day one is that there are something like 1.1 or 1.2 million licensed real estate agents in the United States. About half of those, I think, at any given time are active. But within the active pool, this extremely long, long tail of people that are doing one or two transactions, basically helping out friends and family on the side, all the way up to you know, a small handful of people who are doing over a hundred million dollars in gross sales per year, either individually or as part of their teams. And traditionally brokerage has looked at the space and said, we just want agents, right? Agents means money for us because similar to consulting, we can effectively like bill these people out. It's not exactly the same, but you know, if we hire an agent, it's, it's virtually free to us. And then that agent as an independent contractor can go sell a home or can go rent it out or can property manage it. And we get, you know, in some cases, uh, up to 70% of the, the gross revenue that's coming from these transactions just from being the brand, just from being the name, from traditionally giving them office space and a place to hang your license. And what Compass did 10 years ago is they said, really what we're trying to do is attract the high-end talent because that's all that matters in the brokerage. If you can get eight of the top 10 brokers in any market, every other agent will fall into place. And so they got very aggressive about outright acquiring books of business uh, from top brokers. And, and I think that there is a similar, um, there's a similar model here. I, I mean, I, I think in, in consulting, I don't know exactly, I haven't thought about it fully, but I, I would sense that um, to what you alluded at, that the opportunity is often probably in the like, you know, second to sixth year um, people at a lot of these firms, you know, it's very, <laughs> very, very challenging, even if you're a sizable venture-backed company, to be uh, trying to poach partners away from some of these top consulting firms. But looking at the rising stars, giving them a piece of equity, giving them, you know, ultimately the ability to much faster build a business through people and software around them and go from an earning potential of $300,000 a year to a million dollars a year, because we get really good at productizing somebody's skill set. And that person is just kind of relationship managing. That person is is dealing with a lot of the you know challenges that are client facing, um, and, and so doing that is is something that we're certainly excited about. What are the what are the other things that you're like? What are the unique things that you're really excited about? So one of the you know if I take a step back again, you know fundamentally, at the end of the day, what you're selling is you're selling packaged insights, right? Now a lot of the ways we talked about it in this conversation are fundamentally different from classical consulting firms, but you know, what is similar is ultimately that atomic unit of value that a consulting firm is selling is also knowledge, right? And if you can package knowledge in a cleaner way, some self-serve, some automated, async, right? In-person delivery, all the different models that we talked about already and create, you know, those different types of mechanisms that allow 
individuals to scale more than traditionally. We talked about that also, right? Tech-enabled services. I imagine there's some pretty interesting output. So when you think kind of from a more broader perspective of the business generally, right? And you think about that kind of unit, atomic unit of value in terms of packaging knowledge, what are some of the things that you get really excited about? Yeah, I think uh, from what we've seen, a lot of the things that we are excited about is how you can ingest problems and quickly navigate organizations. Different consulting firms have different methods that I think range from outright purely manual to actually quite creative. But in, in a lot of cases, these aren't uh, these aren't solved with software, and I think in a lot of cases they they could and should be. And so, from what we've heard, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges, whether you are a five person software development agency that's running like a professional services or a consulting business, all the way up to BCG Bain McKinsey, is when you're coming in and you are trying to problem solve. I think that there's a massive challenge around figuring out what the actual problems already are <laughs> or, or are. And there may be a lot of discrepancy between what a senior vice president is telling you versus a director and just understanding organizational structure in terms of who we are trying to make happy, whose day we're trying to make a little bit easier, what problems are we're trying to solve. There's a lot of angst, there's a lot of churn I think particularly with this giant middle segment who's not McKinsey and is not a, a tiny little firm that can just kind of do anything and is mostly working with small companies. And so navigating org structures is, is really easy. But for your average mid-market uh, professional services firm, there's a ton of many, many weeks in some cases of just organizational navigation. And so things like that, things like you know coming from somebody who has an assessment background, looking at how we can better get insights up front around what the actual problems are, uh, trying to be extremely specific with the outcomes. So not saying we're here to fix all of your problems, but we're here to fix this problem and that problem. And then if those two things go well, in our case, we can move on to hopefully a lot of other problems. Uh, one interesting thing is that we, uh, th this might change. I think one early thesis that we have here is that we're not taking on any project work. We're actually billing ourselves like you would bill SaaS, where it's either an annual agreement or a monthly agreement, we want to be looked at as ongoing partners here. And so investing in software to understand an organization where we can hopefully be embedded for a long period of time versus swooping in to fix a problem and then trying to resell that customer in six months uh, for you know, another piece of business, um, being, being more embedded in ongoing challenges is, is certainly something that we're excited about. Um, and, and so there, there's a lot of things there. I think as we look to engage with our first few companies, we're tackling those, those initial pieces right now in, in more of an automated fashion. But I certainly think on an ongoing basis, looking at, again, the, the renewal process, the client management process, um, I think that there are pros and cons to even, even being more transparent with pricing. So many, many consulting firms at the highest end are notorious for being able to swoop in for multi-million dollar contracts really levered against their brand and against kind of the reputation and, and or you know other pieces of work that they've delivered in the past. As a new services or professional services company, we don't have that ability. And so how we can be a little bit more transparent and just be really fast and really responsive when it comes to understanding a problem, understanding exactly, here's the proposal on ABC, how we would fix it, um, has actually won us, I think, some pretty compelling business in the early days where we don't have this you know, six week or nine week or 12 week song and dance around, well, we need another phone call, we need another conversation, let's just pick a thing and start. Uh, and then I think that there's all sorts of, of uh, you know, leveraged opportunities that we can dive into as we get further and further into that engagement. One of the things, Chris, we didn't touch on a ton about, but I'm, I'm interested to have you talk about a bit, is how you how you guys are thinking about financing the business, right? So you have run venture back businesses. Um, you know, outside in this business is different, right? You tweeted, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago that you know the business is only a few months old. You know, good revenue traction so far, profitable or close to profitable, and a pretty clear line of sight of how this can you know continue to scale. Um, and you've also talked a lot about mistakes that founders make, especially in taking money early on. Um, I'm less interested in the founder mistake or founder lessons on early stage financing. I'm, I'm more interested, though, 
in talking about how you finance this business as it scales, because my hypothesis until you, unless you correct me is this is not going to be a classical, you know, we're going to raise our A, B, C, and D, right? Um, different business model can get to profitable a lot faster, can reinvest that and continue to grow the business. So talk a little bit more about the state of how you, of, of how you guys have financed the business, as well as more importantly, how you're thinking about that as you scale. Yep. Yeah. So we, we haven't raised any money to date. Um, and I, I think that at some point that that could change. I've talked about in the past, I think it's, it's tough. If you, the actual answer here that I've told some of my favorite VCs who I'm actually quite excited to work with at some point is once I have a very clear line of sight on how we would return 50 to 100x if we did raise even a single round of, of, of a kind of external capital um, in, in an equity structure. Once we, can, once we can give you venture returns for your venture investment, I would happily accept venture if, if we have a clear thesis. I think we're, we're probably getting there. Um, outside of that, in my, in my previous companies for, for early investors, um, we've returned somewhere between 5 and 15x very, very quickly. Uh, what's funny is that that doesn't get celebrated. It, it's, a, it's an amazing outcome for angels. It's like a meh outcome that nobody talks about for VCs, and it's an incredible outcome for founders and for the team. I really don't want to do that again. I think we, we have enough capital where even if we wanted to inject personal capital, we can always do that. Um, keep it a, a very kind of tight knit business. I think one thing to think about that I always think about with with any business is there are there are huge advantages for taking on uh, you know external partners or, or venture capitalists or angels outside of just the capital. I think actually for a first time founder having investors uh, in in my previous business was amazing because it gave me structure. It's very easy to meander and just focus on a lot of different things. If you go to five or 10 or 20 really smart people who are giving you hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and you tell them, I'm going to go do a thing, you have a lot of external pressure to go do that thing. And I actually, I, I like that. It, it can suck at certain times, like being in that machine and feeling like we're, we're just trying to exist to hit these goals. But that type of pressure is reality. That's how big companies are, are built. And so, you know, I'm not a person that is very good about setting those goals um you know on myself or on my team and so having something that you can rally around having the clear path of okay we've, we've just told investors how we build this into a billion dollar company now in order to make ourselves happy to make them happy we have to actually go do these things and it requires xyz to get there um i think similarly we uh we we like working with people who have experience in the space and so a couple of our early stage investors i think actually one paul arnold was on your podcast uh were investors in my previous company and they had a lot of that mckinsey consulting experience that was extremely helpful as we were both going through the initial ideation how do we bring this to market on the assessment side and then ultimately you know how do we think about growing this company how do we think about hiring um and so there, there's there's a ton of value there and so that's the answer. I think we're, we're working on that. We want to build a big business. And I think if you're building something that is professional services, but has some unique competitive advantage to grow faster than a typical agency or consulting firm, raising even a couple million dollars, as we did in my previous company, can help you skip maybe a year or two or three years of the grind and actually just execute your thesis a lot faster for um, you know, something that ends up being quite worth it, which is, you know, maybe diluting 10 to 20% of the company in the early days, and then getting to a point where hopefully you've skipped a couple of hard years, you're now at a point where you can, you know, start executing and, and jump to seven figures in revenue, and start reinvesting that revenue and become more of like a capital allocator working on the business instead of, you know, inside the business. Working in the business. Yeah, I like that yeah. articulation, especially the working on versus working in the business. That's something I talk about with folks a lot. Uh, actually yep. on the podcast. As we round out the conversation, Chris, you know, a question I've enjoyed asking a lot of our guests on the show is, you know, what one thing do you believe about your business and industries that others wouldn't agree with you on? We've, we've talked a lot about, you know, why this space is ripe for disruption, right? Or some of the different mechanics or philosophical things. But, you know, if you were to reflect what's something about this business industry we haven't talked about today, you know, that others wouldn't necessarily agree with you on? I think, I think that there's a, a unique insight. I don't know if it's something that people would agree or disagree on. I, I, I think from a, the success of any company is, is largely dependent on timing, obviously. And 
COVID is actually quite interesting from a timing perspective in that a lot of the uh, second to sixth year consultants who, who I've talked about, it would be easy to acquire them, help them kind of get more leverage through processes and software. Uh, what we're finding is that COVID has shifted the entire industry quite a bit for those people. So if you were, if you were previously a you know, third year consultant and you were on the road three, four or five days out of the week and you're running around and you're working like crazy, um, the last nine months you've been at home and it's possibly been amazing and you don't want to go back to that road of like getting, getting on planes and getting on trains and getting in Ubers and like running all over the country. And so I think one, one unique advantage that we have is that we're actually very excited about long-term um, the remote possibilities here. And, and so I think there actually is an interesting talent acquisition opportunity that has happened over the last nine months and will happen for probably another many months with some of these junior people who are actually not super excited to go back to the grind. They've seen what it looked like. They've also seen how many possibilities are available to them working over Zoom and working from a computer. And so, you know, from a, from a further talent acquisition perspective, I think looking at, at least initially, uh, you know, eventually we certainly are excited to get back to in-person meetings. But if you had to blank slate build a professional services firm that you just imagine 10 years into the fu future, uh, how do you actually avoid travel and how do you avoid some of those complexities when you're levering somebody's time, if, if that time isn't spent burning young people out and putting them on planes and flying them all over the place to, to shake hands and be in meetings, if you can properly collect that information online, either through online meetings or through calls or through software, and you're actually building that from day one versus kind of scrambling in the background to try to rebuild these processes and, and rebuild these client relationships, I think that that's, that's quite interesting. You know, our, our early ability to get um, sizable contracts without a brand, without, you know, any outside capital is interesting. And I think that, that, that part of that will be that, you know, over the next few months and years, we'll hopefully be um, hiring a lot of people who have experience in the space, but are looking for just, just purely a different lifestyle. And so I think the lifestyle piece of this entire business is actually, it, it is overlooked and undervalued in terms of what um, a, a new entrant into the space can actually accomplish. I love that. Um, Chris, I, I, I'm really glad you made the time to come on the podcast today. I, I think yeah, thank you so much. We, we had a good time chatting about last month or so and really excited to see the company continue to build out. So it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch from the sidelines. Yeah, thanks so much. This is awesome.